Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he asked with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded it beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In 1843, Edgar Allan Poe published a short story entitled, A Telltale Heart. Now, if you know much about Edgar Allan Poe, he he wrote a lot of horror stories, and this was a horror story about a murder. What was unique about this story is that the horror of the murder story was not about the victim, it was about the horror that the murderer underwent. In this story, the murderer tries to act with perfect rationality, coolly, calmly, calculatedly tries to commit the perfect crime, insists that he isn't influenced by hatred or passion. But as he does this heinous, awful deed, and as the story goes on, this man who claims to be perfectly rational, perfectly guided by reason alone, he goes mad. He's haunted and he's tormented by his crime. And as you read, you begin to share his terror. And what's so interesting is it's not terror about what might happen to this man in the future. It's terror about what has already happened, terror about what he has done. It's a story about the power of the conscience. Now, in this story, we are hearing another story about conscience, a real-life story, about another man who commits a heinous, awful murder, a man who were told about the effects of this horrible crime on his conscience. Namely, he invents a story that Jesus can only be explained as though this is John the Baptist raised to dead, this one whom he has murdered. That's the only explanation he would give because of his conscience. We're told the story about what comes after this deed, and then we're given the backstory that tells us what has happened. It's one of the very few times in the Bible where the story is told out of order this way, and it's to shine light, to bring attention to the power of conscience in this story. What this story is telling us, even though this is a dark, horrible story about persecution and murder of one of God's most faithful servants, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament covenant era, then nevertheless we are told of a great hope. That the evil don't get away with what we think they get away with. That there are, in fact, two judgments. And we see 
the first part of that judgment, that series of judgments here. Now, the first judgment everyone has to face is in this life when we face the judgment of our own consciences. And that judgment is so serious, so severe, because it foreshadows and look for, looks forward to the greater judgment that will come by Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom God appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. All of that is reflected in this story here. So our big idea this morning is this. Get and keep a good conscience. Get and keep a good conscience. Three parts to the sermon this morning. First of all, the condemning conscience, the condemning conscience specifically of Herod. Second, the clear conscience, namely the clear conscience of John the Baptist. And then third, the cleansed conscience, the cleansed conscience. And this is where we see the hope of the gospel for guilty consciences, like yours and like mine. So let's start in the first section, the condemning conscience in verses 1 through 2. We read, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. Now, it's important as we get started that we are very clear about which Herod we're talking about. Uh, this Herod is not the Herod we encountered at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, where we read about Herod the Great. That is this Herod's father. Herod the Great was the, Her uh, the, the father of this Herod, uh, who is sometimes identified as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Now, we'll talk more about his story a little bit later. But this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, heard about the fame of Jesus. That is, not necessarily that this is the first time that Herod has heard anything about Jesus, but that at this point, Jesus' notoriety is growing. More people are hearing about more things that Jesus has done. And as we look forward in verse 2, we see that it's particularly the miracles, the great deeds that Jesus is performing are catching the attention of Herod. He's thinking, or catching the attention of Herod because he thinks that this must be John. And these miraculous powers of John raised from the dead are at work in this Jesus. But again, the fact that Jesus, or that, that Herod believes that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead is attributed to the guilty conscience of Herod. Again, we're starting at the end of the story. We're starting sequentially, chronologically at the end of this story, and then we're going to be told the backstory later. The reason is to shine the light, to draw our attention to the devastating, crippling effects of Herod's conscience in the midst of this horrible thing that he has done. What has he done? Well, Herod's conscience is burdened by a number of crimes, crimes that include adultery, incest, and in fact, murder. John Calvin writes this, he says, because bad com consciences tremble and hesitate and turn with every wind, Herod readily believed what he dreaded. With such blind terrors, God frequently alarms wicked men, so that after all the pains they take to harden themselves and to escape agitation, their internal executioner, that's what a conscience is. An internal executioner gives them no rest, but chastises them with severity. This is a terribly dark story. It's just kind of dropped in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been reading so much about Jesus. He's been at the center of the figure, uh, of the story. He's been teaching. He's been acting. He's been performing these great miracles. We talked about John, uh, but a long time ago. 
Jesus has held the center of attention. Even the last time that John popped up, it was when John sent his disciples to ask Jesus a question. We saw Jesus' response to that question. But here suddenly, Matthew pauses and, and focuses on this horrible thing that has happened to John the Baptist. But the reason and the way that Matthew tells this story is to give us some hope some hope right from the very beginning of this story that Herod doesn't get away with this. Not in this life and certainly not in, in the life to come. The wicked cannot escape the final judgment, but what Matthew wants us to see here is the wicked cannot escape the judgment that they face from their consciences now. What we are seeing here is what the Scriptures talk about as a condemning conscience, a bad or an evil conscience. Now, we talk about the conscience, and let your conscience be your guide. We maybe use conscience in some different ways, but we don't often very th think very seriously about what a conscience actually is. It's sort of some power within us that we recognize. We've all experienced the effects of conscience, either in good ways or bad ways. I'm glad I did this. I'm very ashamed I did that. But the word conscience, it's helpful to understand just what it means. The word con means shared or with. If you speak Spanish or Spanish, that word con, it means with. Uh, it's the idea of uh, conjointly, some kind of shared, and what are we sharing? Science or, or knowledge. It's a shared knowledge. That is a knowledge that is shared, really the idea is a knowledge that is shared with God of what happens inside of our souls. Our consciences are monitoring everything we feel, everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, whether anyone else knows about it or not. God has appointed the conscience in the soul, and this is a part of the way that we were created. The conscience in the soul functions as a prosecutor from whom nothing is hidden. Our consciences become the judges, the juries, even the executioners in our souls so that we suffer from the knowledge of sin. And every one of you can probably recall something in your past, something that you have done that has burdened your conscience that you would do anything to fix, anything to undo, not because you necessarily got caught. Maybe you've gotten away with it until this day, but because your conscience won't let you get away with it inside your soul. The Puritan William Perkins, who lived in the 16th century, writes this. He says, conscience is nothing else but a beginning of the last judgment. The last judgment will be far more severe, but what we feel in our consciences is a beginning of that last judgment. And we are seeing here the torment of a condemning conscience where Herod's mind is twisted to think irrational things. The only explanation for this Jesus is that he must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know, I enjoy reading or watching a lot of spy stories. I enjoy hearing about stories where especially there are these global conflicts, where different peoples are oper operating at the top of their game, trying to either conceal information or to reveal information, to discover information that the other side has concealed. I love that struggle. But you know what? I find the most modern stories so boring, because as you get further along technologically, the spy stories are all about how computers discover everything there is to discover about everyone. There is no way to hide almost anything in this life from anyone. 
There are security cameras. There are facial recognition softwares. There's all kinds of ways to comb through search histories. There's all kinds of biogeometric data included with your smartphone. On and on and on it goes. There's no way to hide anything from anyone. And so if I want to read a good spy story, I want to read something from the Cold War or from World War II where people could hide things from another, like when things were in the good old days, right? But it's so interesting today, even though there's really nothing we can hide, except from what is inside our soul, what the Bible tells us is that we can't hide even what we think in our private thoughts and don't type to anyone, don't say aloud in our soul. Even that is not hidden from our conscience. The greatest supercomputers in all the world cannot necessarily penetrate your thoughts but your conscience knows all of it. Your conscience knows everything you have done, everything you have said, everything you have thought, every fleeting feeling. And your conscience holds you accountable for all of it. Maybe this morning, and you are here today burdened by conscience. You understand what it is to have all of your thoughts irrationally twisted, because you can't get out of your mind not what might happen, but what has happened, what you yourself have done. Well, here we see a bad conscience right out of the gate, a condemning conscience. What's the alternative? The alternative we see in the second section in verses 3 through 5, the clear conscience, the clear conscience. And the clear conscience is what John the Baptist experiences in verses 3 through 5. Again, we are now getting into the rest of the story. We are not reading the end of the story, we are actually doing the backstory. So imagine, maybe you've seen this in a movie, where at the beginning of the movie, there's this flash scene, and it's actually from chronologically, sequentially, the end of the story. And then after you see that teaser about what is going to happen, where all of the action is leading, and then you see six months earlier, the little caption at the beginning of the screen. That's what we're reading here. We don't know how much time it was, maybe it was six months, maybe it was six weeks. But we're flashing back, and we're picking up the backstory. We read four. Here's what happened. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, this is where we get into the horrible story of the beginning of the problems of Herod's evil conscience. Herod the Great was not a great man. He was a horrible man. Herod in addition to being the one who murdered as many children under the age of three that he could find in a region for the sake of trying to stamp out Jesus, and he failed at that, just blithely committing that evil of a crime, this is a man who also, by many different wives, fathered many different children. By one wife, Herod the Great fathered Herod Antipas, the, the man that we are reading about, Herod the Tetrarch in this story. By another wife, Herod the Great fathered Philip, that's Herod's half-brother. We read about Philip here. By yet another wife, he fathered a woman named Herodias. Philip committed incest by marrying his half-sister, Herodias. This is explicitly forbidden in Leviticus 18, verse 9. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, even a half-sister, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in your family or in another home. To make matters worse than Herod and Herodias, who again are also half-brother, half-sister, they fell in love. 
Herodias left one of her half-brothers to marry her other half-brother. So again, we're caught in the middle of incest, but this is also a matter of adultery. The general commandment is the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. The specific commandment is covered in Leviticus 18, verse 16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. And in verse 4, we read about the faithfulness of John the Baptist to declare the word of God faithfully, saying, it is not lawful for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. Now, it's important to recognize lest we think that we are unique, that it has always been unpopular, it has always been dangerous to speak against the sexual sins of a particular age. We have to do it today for a number of different sexual sins, rebelling against God's design for human sexuality. But John the Baptist has to do it here because of what the leaders in high places are just allowed to get away with with this incest and this adultery. But what's important to recognize here is that John the Baptist is a prophet. He's Jesus as the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant. And as a prophet, he is compelled to speak the Word of God, even when it gets him in trouble. But if he had shrunk from this, he would have shrunk from the task that God had appointed him to do. He would have had a bad conscience, a condemning conscience for failing to speak the words that he needed to speak at the time when he needed to speak it. Even though it cost him dearly, John the Baptist spoke faithfully. We read then about the death of John the Baptist later, but understand that when John the Baptist died, he died at peace with a clear conscience Herod, the man who is left standing, is still living for a time, but he is tormented, tormented by the conscience for what he has done. John the Baptist is in a better place than Herod, while one dies and yet one is alive. There is nothing more important than conscience in this life, but especially in the life to come, because what we endure by our conscience in this life is a foreshadowing of what we will experience in such a greater degree in the life to come. So our big idea is get and keep a good conscience. We have two very different stories of conscience in this passage. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with a complicated conversation that you need to have, a difficult conversation to speak into sin, maybe some kind of sin, maybe even sexual sin. And it's so difficult to wrestle with what we need to say, what we need to say to those around us, those whom we love, those whom we have a responsibility to speak into their lives. And it's sometimes, as we think back on other conversations we have, we feel that we've said too much. I look back on certain conversations, I wish I hadn't said that. I put my foot in my mouth. In the heat of the moment, I said more than I should have said. In other conversations, we look back on times where we say, you know what, I didn't say the thing that I needed to say in that moment, and I regret it. One principle I've tried to think through, and I can't say to have done this perfectly, but it's what I've thought about is the five-year rule. I try to think to myself, in five years, what will I be thankful that I didn't say in the heat of the moment? Emotions, passions were raging. I wanted to say one thing or the other. I was mad about this or that. I wanted to get even in some way. I am so glad I didn't say this at that time. I'm glad I held my tongue about that. 
It would have felt good then, but five years from now, it doesn't feel good as my conscience thinks back on that moment. Or five years from now, what will I be thankful to have said? No matter how things went, whether things went better or whether things felt worse, what do I wish I would have said? And I'm thankful, maybe looking back at the time, looking back on that, this moment that I have in front of me, I want to be thankful for what I did say in the moment. The reason that is a helpful exercise is because of the power of conscience. Because, see, even after the immediate pressures of the conversation fade away, even after whatever consequences that I'm going to have to suffer for either having or not having that conversation pass away, ultimately, I will continue to have to deal with my conscience. And my conscience knows everything about me. And yours does about you. What does your conscience say, good or ill, about the things you have done, the things you haven't done, the things you have said, the things that you haven't said? A clear conscience is so valuable. But the glaring question is, maybe you're thinking about all this and you're saying, what if I don't have a good conscience? What if my sins haunt me? What if I have Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart where the horror of my life is not what might happen, it's what has happened, and I can't get rid of it? Well, that's what Matthew tells us about. He points forward. He hints at. We're going to need the rest of the Bible to fill out the rest of the story, but he hints at in the next section. What we read about in the section three, the cleansed conscience, the cleansed conscience. Now, at the beginning of this story, it doesn't sound good. Don't worry, we'll get to the cleansed conscience as we go. But we read about Herod adding one crime on to the top of another. He has his niece. This is his adoptive daughter, the full daughter of Herodias, his niece dancing for him in what is very clearly a provocative way as it says that she pleased Herod to the point where he breathlessly promises this oath to her to give her whatever she might ask. It's very clear what's going on in that time. The woman's name, we don't know from the text of the Bible, but extra-biblical literature suggests that her name was Salome. And we read when Salome went to ask her mother, Herodias, what she should ask for in response to Herod's oath, Herodias doesn't have to think twice. She says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Salome carries this message back from her mother to Herod. And we read in verse 9, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Now, we're coming across here another issue of conscience. When we claim, promise to do things, when we make an oath especially to do something, what should we do about it? Now, the Bible commends those who swear to their own hurt and yet do not change. When we make oaths, we need to take those oaths seriously. And there are times, we shouldn't always take oaths, but there are times to take oaths and vows. When we take them, we need to make them seriously. Jesus even simplified it. When you say yes, that needs to be yes. When you say no, that needs to be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But especially when the king makes an oath, when he swears to do something, what should he do? Well, the Bible also shows us that there are exceptions. There are always exceptions to rules, and the exception for oaths, one of them, is when we swear to do something sinful. If you swear to do something sinful today, to, the, to, tomorrow, today, 
And then when tomorrow comes, you realize that you have sworn to do something sinful or the circumstances change so that to do that thing would be sinful, then that is a reason to break your oath. If you swore to do something sinful, that was a sin in itself. You should not compound sin upon sin by then carrying out the sinful thing that you promised to do. Herod has promised to do something sinful for sinful, lustful reasons. And he adds sin upon sin by carrying this out. We see elsewhere when Saul in 1 Samuel 14 swears to do something sinful that people will die if they eat before the battle is over. And when his own son eats, the rest of the people have to shield Jonathan from Saul. Then later in 1 Samuel 25, when David swears that he would indeed put Nabal to death for the, for the uh, crime of belittling his men, Nabal's wife Abigail goes and convinces David not to do this sinful thing, and he turns from it. It is a right thing not to add sin to sin by sinning when we have sworn to sin. But here Herod does exactly that. Because of the oaths, he shouldn't do it, but he does it anyway. And because of his guests, because of his pride, he doesn't want to look like he's shrinking from something he promised to do, Herod carries this out. Now Herod has not only wrongly imprisoned John the Baptist, he has wrongly murdered John the Baptist. And on top of his adultery, on top of his incest, this is what really grates at his conscience. And that's what we read about at the beginning of this story. And so in verse 12, we get sort of the epitaph of John's life. It's very brief in the Gospel of Matthew. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. All that Herod has done, all of the guilty conscience that he's dealing with, what then do we make of John the Baptist? Well, Jesus, we should note in the very next verse, in verse 13, is going to grieve over this. We read that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus went to grieve, but then the pressures of ministry interrupted his grief. Uh, we'll get to that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But in many ways, when we think about John the Baptist, we think about the way John's life ends, this is a fitting end, not because he deserved it, because he had done something to deserve this death, but because what happens here is that John becomes a martyr. He suffers and he dies for the cause for which he lived, to bear faithful witness for this sake in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, martyr, you may know, the word means witness. He bore witness in his life, and he bore witness faithfully all the way unto death. This is a faithful, fitting end for the greatest witness to point forward to Jesus. Because John lived his entire life pointing forward to Jesus. In John 3, verse 30, John the Baptist is recorded as saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Those are good words for all of us. And notice that when John decreases, it seems that Jesus increases by the fact that John's disciples are now following Jesus. They went and they buried John's body, and then they went and told Jesus. They're now with Jesus. But John also, remember, he was a faithful witness preparing the way for Jesus. He did this, first of all, in the message that he preached. John went in the wilderness and preached the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 3, verse 2, later on when Jesus followed after John, 
John had prepared the way. He was a forerunner for Jesus. Jesus preached the exact same message in Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now what we are seeing, again, this is such a fitting end for John the Baptist. John is a forerunner for Jesus by dying a bloody death in advance of the way that Jesus would die a bloody death. First, John will die in this way, and then Jesus. Both of them will bear faithful witness to the truth all the way unto death. But of course, there's an essential difference between John the Baptist and Jesus. John's death was preparatory. It pointed forward to the greater death of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ's death was unique. Only Jesus' bloody death would atone for the sins of sinners with evil consciences like you and like me. Jesus' blood, we are told in the rest of Scripture, cleanses consciences. If you have an evil, condemning conscience, whether other people know about what you have done or said or thought or felt, you know it. Your conscience knows it. And it accuses you of it. If you don't have a good conscience by nature, and none of us do, all of us are born sinners, then you need the blood of Jesus to purify your conscience. Hebrews 9 verses 13 through 14 says this, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, outwardly in other words. How much more, the author continues, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you have a guilty conscience this morning, the way for your conscience to be cleansed from pollution and iniquity and impurity is through the blood of Jesus, which makes John's death so important. His ministry from first to last was to point forward to Jesus, first in the message he preached and now in the way of going to a bloody death in advance of his master. You know, John the Baptist was a forerunner. In those days, just to capture the image, powerful kings had a retinue. They had an entourage, people who went with them, hosts who accompanied them when they would go out to show their strength. And many of them would follow in their train, but many of these would be forerunners, going out ahead of the king to declare and make straight the way for the king coming into their way. Think about any time the presidential motorcade goes into a city. Does the president ever just, you know, drive his own car and go somewhere and pop out and do whatever he's going to do? Of course not. He has forerunners even to this day. He has police officers going on motorcycles ahead of him and other people's in these armored limos ahead of him. Why? Well, a lot of it is for security purposes. If these police officers identify threats on the way, the president can be diverted one way or another. What's striking about this story is that John the Baptist went into danger, fully identified the scope of the danger, and Jesus the King was not diverted from it. He wasn't, by his secret service, whisked away as many times as his disciples tried to do that. Jesus rebuked them for this. Jesus followed in the footsteps of the forerunner, John the Baptist, as we read in this story, so that he could give his life up so that we could be cleansed 
of our sins. What John's did was extraordinary, but it was not enough. Jesus himself, the spotless, pure, without blemish Son of God who took upon a human nature had to die so that we might live. In the story then, we have a very clear application. It's the same as the big idea. Get and keep a good conscience. Now, we live in an age that frequently devalues conscience. We frankly don't care about conscience. Our culture regularly lies to one another, regularly makes up truth. We even talk about it as my truth or your truth. Christians shouldn't talk that way, but the culture talks that way. Our culture talks that way. We live as a people of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But conscience is a central emphasis in Scripture, and so we should take it seriously. In Acts 24, verse 16 The Apostle Paul says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And then 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, again the Apostle Paul, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then Romans 13 verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You would think that God's wrath would be a sufficient deterrent to what Paul's writing about there. But he says, don't only worry about the wrath of God, also worry about the sake of conscience. The age of the Puritans in the 17th century, some historians call the age of the conscience. People took the conscience seriously. It's some of the most incisive writing in all of human history about the nature of the conscience. And if you read the Puritans, you find that they had a lot to say drawn from the Scriptures, pulling out these gems from the Scriptures about what the conscience does. Namely, in Romans 2 and Romans 9, the conscience bears witness against us, either to accuse us or to excuse us. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the way that sin, that sin can weaken and wound the conscience, leading us to feel defiled and guilty long into the future, even at times in the future when we have not necessarily sinned. But because of past associations, he's writing in that passage about eating food sacrificed to idols. Even what is objectively okay is sin if someone with a troubled conscience goes into it. Then we read in Titus 1 verse 15, Paul writes that sin defiles the conscience for unbelievers so that nothing can be done with a pure conscience. And then in 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, we read that through habitual remorseless sin, the conscience can be seared seared like with burning heat where you lose all sensitivity. At General Assembly a few years ago, one man preached about, um, about his own hands where he, his hands were terribly, terribly burned and he cannot feel anything. And I still remember the illustration. He said, you don't want to be sitting next to me at the dinner table when I'm passing you a dish because I can't feel if it will be scalding hot if I hand it over to you. That's the insensitivity that sin has on the conscience over time. What the Bible says is that nothing is so important as a good conscience. My big idea is drawn from a Puritan named William Perkins, who says that the main duty we have is to get and to keep a good conscience. But the problem, of course, we face is that all of our consciences are evil because of sin. We are sinners from conception. We inherit the original guilt and the original corruption of our first father, Adam. The only way to gain a good conscience then, and we can gain a good conscience, but the only way to that good conscience is by regeneration. It's by the promises of the gospel where the blood of Jesus 
purifies us from a defiled conscience. And those promises of a cleansed conscience are signified and sealed in what we saw this morning in baptism. 1 Peter 3, verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. We can't have a good conscience just by taking it. We appeal to God to give us one by grace and through faith, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is your conscience guilty this morning? You can hide from me. You can hide from everyone else in this room. But you cannot hide from God and you cannot hide in this life from your conscience. At night when you are trying to fall asleep, your conscience accuses you. So maybe this morning you're crying out, where can I find relief? Yes, my conscience burdens me. Where can I find relief? And what this passage points us forward to is from the blood of John the Baptist to the greater blood of Jesus Christ shed at the cross. His blood purifies even the most defiled, the most troubled, the most burdened consciences. The blood of Jesus stops the mouth of the accuser. Not only Satan, the accuser of the brethren, but the prosecutor, the judge and jury and executioner that God has set within your soul, your own conscience. The blood of Jesus blots out your sin. It imparts to you Christ's own righteousness. The blood of Jesus makes you confident to stand before the presence of God's glory with great joy, without any fear of condemnation throughout all of eternity. Can you imagine that? In your defiled state right now, the blood of Jesus gives you peace in your conscience today and on into the future. There's no way to undo the wrong that we have done. You can run that scene over in your mind a thousand times. You can never change the past. And there's no way to outdo, to outweigh the wrongs that you have done on one side by trying to pile up your filthy rags of righteousness on the other side. The only hope you have is to have Christ Jesus pardon your sins, blot out, purge out, expiate, expunge your sins, purify your conscience through the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. I plead with you, if you don't have peace, find it. Find peace with God and peace within your soul and the conscience that God has appointed over you. Get a good conscience through faith in Christ. And then by the power of the Spirit, through faith in Christ, as He teaches you a new way to live, learn to live in the way that John, John the Baptist has lived, not to earn something from God, but to live in grateful obedience as you seek to not only get, but to keep that good conscience through obedience, through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would indeed give us a good conscience. We have no hope for a good conscience except through the blood of Jesus. And I pray that for any here today who do not yet know Jesus, that you would sprinkle their consciences clean as they appeal to you for a good conscience through the promises of the gospel that were symbolized and sealed before us in the waters of baptism that teach us that righteousness comes by faith. I pray if there are any who don't know yet know Jesus this morning that you would lead them to faith in Jesus through your word. And as we've witnessed these sacraments this morning, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.